It's not really as exciting for most people, but I don't know if you understand that this week, something kind of exciting for me is on Tuesday, the new season of Deadliest Catch kicks off. That's exciting. Anybody ever seen Deadliest Catch? Okay, so if you're looking at me and you're like, Deadliest Catch? Like, what is this? Uh, this was a, a show that was like a cool reality show before reality shows were really reality shows. It was uh, crazy people who captain boats and work on crab boats in the middle of the Bering Sea. And it, it's just wild because Forbes magazine continues to rate um, crab fishing or fishing in general as the number one most dangerous job in America every single year. And so it, it's just like you're expecting things to go wrong on this ship. And I've been watching this show for ages. And it's funny because as I've watched it, you get to know the captains and the crews. And there was two people, two captains that I could not stand. Like their attitudes, the way that they interacted with their crews, the way that they even like handled what they were trying to do. I was like, I hate these guys. And I know you have to have that in a show to keep people engaged. But one of them, his name is Bill Wikowski, or I'm not even sure how to say his last name. They call him Wild Bill. Look at that guy. And I know you're probably thinking, how can you not like someone who looks so much like Jesus with an earring? Um, it's like, right? But Wild Bill, his behavior gave him that name, Wild Bill. And a, a couple seasons into the show, I remember an episode where they're in the middle of this freezing Bering Sea, and their boat begins to take on water. This is not good if you're on a boat, right? You don't want water to be in the boat. You need it to be out of the boat. And it's starting to come into the boat. As it's coming into the boat, Wild Bill gets on his little PA from his little, like, you know, uh, captain's area. And he's like, hey, guys, we got water coming. Fix it. And they're like, oh, they start freaking out. And he's like, figure out what the problem is. So do you know what the crew does? The crew all of a sudden looks at each other. They drop everything that they're doing fishing-wise, which is exactly what he said. And they start to grab these giant buckets. Imagine like, you know, the Home Depot buckets, since they don't give you like baskets, you got to carry it in the bucket. Um, very inefficient. But, you know, they grab these size buckets and they just start bailing water as much as they can. It's cold. It's spraying. And so Bill gets back on the PA and he's like, I told you guys to fix the problem. Tell me what the problem is. And they're like, there's water on the boat. And they keep bailing. So he leaves his little perch. He comes down. And this is one of my favorite parts. They hand him a bucket when he comes down. Like, okay, this extra set of hands is going to make all the difference. He takes the bucket, throws it back in their face, pushes them aside, and he's like, you idiots. And he gets onto the deck, and he starts to unscrew part of the floor, of the deck of the ship. And he starts to tinker inside, and he says, guys, we have a pump problem. And they're like, oh. He said, you could bail all you want. We got a pump problem. Go downstairs into the engine room, and I need you to find this part for me so we can replace it. So they go down, and he's unscrewing everything to really give himself and disassembling. And, and they come back up, and they're like, we can't find it. And he goes wild bill on them. He goes nuts, and he's like, you guys can't find anything. I'll find it. And so they, he goes down, and now they're 
still taking buckets of water out. As he goes down, he realizes the part isn't there, but what he does is he begins to disassemble some of the things in that room that are not needed to put together a makeshift part to fit the pump. He comes back out. He leans down into that little pocket of hole that he's made on the deck, and he starts to fit that makeshift piece to the pump so that the pump begins to work. It begins to take the water and push it out of the boat enough to where they can get into port to get the real part that they need. And I know you're probably thinking, like, Jimmy, why are you telling me about Deadliest Catch? Do you like it that much? And the answer is yes. Yes, I like it that much. That's an exciting moment. And the reason that I tell you this is because when Captain Bill told them figure out the problem, they started bailing water. They started getting the problem that was in front of them out. And this is what they thought was the real issue. But what Captain Bill saw from his little purchase, you guys are trying to fix the problem. You're not really looking at the issue. You guys were focused on the wrong thing, in the wrong place. The water was not the issue. I told you to figure out the issue. He saw the bigger issue, and his goal was to call his crew to figure out, find out what we need. You know, I, I think for many of us, in our lives, especially for me, I feel like so much of my life is spent bailing water instead of fixing the problems that are really in my life. I spend so much time bailing waters in relationships and at work and, uh, you know, in, in all the different avenues that I've got, whether it's financial or, you know, relational. I, I'm bailing water constantly when sometimes the water's not the problem. There's a deeper issue that needs to be addressed. And I think I'm, I'm trying to bail what I'm, I'm supposed to, but... Really, there's a pump issue in my life. And I think many of us are in that situation where we are spending so much time focused on the water that's filling up the boats of our lives when there's a pump problem. And we sit here begging God constantly, would you help me, would you help me, would you help me bail the water? And in prayer, we hand him bucket after bucket after bucket. And from heaven and from earth with us through the Holy Spirit. He's like, but that's not what you need. That's not what you need. There's a good chance many of us, as we hand those buckets to God, think that's what we need. But I don't think most of us know what we really need. I think most of us get so stressed out over the things that overwhelm our lives that it puts us in a place where we have no peace because we have all these problems and the good news this morning, the good news for us, if we're in that place of, I just feel so overwhelmed and don't know what to do, is that God cares about everything that is happening. He cares about the water coming on board, but he also sees what we really need. And I believe that trusting that God knows what we need brings us peace. Trusting that God knows what we need will bring peace to our lives. I have a feeling that many of us are looking for this type of peace. And as we look at the series that we're in right now in week two of When People Meet Jesus, a series about when people encounter Jesus, I want to look at a story um, that Ruby had read for us where there's a group of guys who approach Jesus with one thing that they think they need, but Jesus sees a different need. There is something that needs to happen. There's water that needs to be bailed, but he sees something bigger. 
And so we're going to look at that passage from the biography of Jesus written by Mark. We're going to look at chapter 2 in that passage that Ruby read um, just great for us this morning. So thank you for that, Rue. And if, if you turn to this passage with me, it'll be about three-quarters of the way through your Bible. When you get into Mark chapter 2, there's a, uh, in Mark chapter 1, actually, we find that Jesus has already visited this town of Capernaum. And while he was in this town in the first chapter, he was teaching. And as he taught, people began to gather in the city. And then he started to bring healing to people. And as he started to bring healing, people were enamored with him and went, wow, you can teach and you can heal. And then he started healing people. The sick were coming. Those who had demons, were those were being cast out. And the, the city was packed with people. They all knew about his story. And then the very next day, what's wild is that Jesus goes away. He, he leaves early in the morning. His disciples come, and they're like, hey, everybody's looking for you back home. And he's like, yeah, we need to go. And, and instead of going back to where everybody was, he leaves the town and begins to do some miracles in some other towns, and the gathering begins to build. But in the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, we read that when Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. It would make sense, right? They were waiting on him before, and now they're in a place where... Oh, oh, he's back, he's back. Let's get everybody back to be around Jesus because he can bring all this healing. So the, the entire city flocks to the house that he's staying at. And now we find the focal point of our story. Five men. Five men who are all looking to meet Jesus. Every one of them wants to be in front of Jesus. One of these men happens to be carried on a mat. And, and he's carried on a mat because he's paralyzed and he cannot walk. So you have four friends who are going to carry one friend to get to Jesus. And here's the crazy part is uh, the best way to describe a mat in the first century. Uh, any yogis out here? You've you're got your mats all okay. No, it's okay, Crossbridge. You could do yoga. It's totally cool. No one's going to be like, oh, it's okay. Um, so listen, you know the, the mats that are like, I look at them and I think this is disgusting. You drip all over this. And then you're like, roll it up and put it in my car. I'm like, ugh. Um, everybody actually had a mat in the first century. You slept on a mat, you used a mat when you traveled somewhere, and you would just backpack it, unroll it when you went, and everyone had a mat that they would sleep on. So it's not really abnormal to see someone picking up or rolling up their mat to carry it. This is very, very normal in that culture. But what we know about this man is since he's paralyzed and cannot walk, he does not have the privilege of rolling up his mat to put it under his arm on his back and take a walk and go away. So his mat had to be different because he needed people to carry him. And so it looked a little bit more like this instead of a yoga roll, okay? So if you see there, it's got like this, this bottom to it that a person could lay in or stay in. It can't be too far off the ground because they need to roll out or stay on and, you know, they got to work with it. But it had these handles that people could carry them around. And this man is privileged enough to have four different friends who could help each grab a handle and now they can support him there's no rolling this type of mat up to go somewhere it would have been very expensive to have something like this and it's bulky and here's the problem with it being so bulky is this mat defined who this man was this mat defined who he was and everyone knew just by his mat that you can't walk 
So he arrives on his mat, carried by his friends, and as they, they begin to make their way towards this house that they knew Jesus is at, they come into a problem. It took longer for them to get there than it took everybody else. Uh, you, could you imagine trying to squeeze through with a mat in four people, and then you're trying to like wiggle? This isn't going to work, is it? Did you ever get to Disney World if you went there, an amusement park, and everyone got there at like 7 a.m. to get in when the doors open at 9, and then they all rushed to someplace? You know, you, you thought you were doing well by rolling up at 10, and you get in line, and, and they're like, can you just cut a Disney line if you want to die? <laughs> right? You don't do that. Mickey's coming for you. It's, it's bad. You don't do that. So these guys, there's no way you're cutting into to line to go see Jesus. Everybody wants to see Jesus. So they, they can't get to him. And instead of just going, ah, oh, this is, I guess, I guess we lose today. No, Jesus already went away. The last time he was here, he may not come back. So instead of just resolving to give up, when there's not a way to meet Jesus that you think is the way it's supposed to be, there's always got to be another way. And so they try to find another way, and they go up to the roof. Right. Now, this for us does not make a lot of sense, and I completely understand that. We look at it and go, why would you go up there? Um, in the first century, this is totally normal. The roofs of most um, Israeli or Palestinian homes, even still today, they're used for all sorts of things. They're giant and really, really thick. And you throw parties up there. You throw festivals up there. They're reinforced as almost like a, an extra room. I know there's a big thing going in our culture where you have like that outside patio space that turns into like square footage of your home somehow. That's what this was. It was like extra square footage on the top of your home. And everyone would use it. And it was, if it was built correctly, no one would fall through. And so it kind of looked like this, all right? Um, this was kind of the layout and the, the side view of what it would look like. It would have wood beams that were crossing it and really thick wood beams, the closest and the biggest that you could find in the area. And then they would overlay these wood branches with um, dried branches and dried leaves, usually palm branches, because those are especially around the center, you know, the center of palm branches, how tightly um, compact they are and strong. They would, they would lay these out as much as they could, and then they would take the dirt and the mud, and they would mix the mud with these branches, and then they would lay it in to make sure that it was becoming thick. And then the top of it, if you see here, it has that little roller. These things, um, they would put on top, but here's why. Uh, you know uh, how in 295, at all times, they're doing road work? Um, they have those big old party pavers. They, the giant, they, they push that asphalt down. Why? So that when trucks and cars are on it, it doesn't continue to settle down. They want it to be settled. And so each season, when it became rainy season, um, you would worry about the rain coming through your roof because the heat would begin to crack it. It's mud, right? So you would repatch your roof right before rainy season, and you would take this roller, everyone would have a roller on the roof, and they would roll their roof to make sure that it stayed compact, stayed tight so that you can keep people up there. Does that make sense? You see how you can have like a party up there, and I mean, if your kid did something stupid, you're like, that's it, go roll the roof. Um, you can't make him mow the lawn, you roll the roof. This is what you do. So these men, what they do is they go up to the roof, which is a totally normal thing to do, and they're thinking, we need to get to see Jesus, so how do we get to him they, man, do you ever read parts of the Bible and go, how did you come to this conclusion? How did you get here? 
this is one of those passages for me that I wrestle with and at the same time go, I get it. You put four guys on a roof thinking, how do we get down there? Let's dig through it. Sometimes guys don't have the best ideas when they're together. Um, and here, I think this is one of those moments they were trying to find a way to get to Jesus and they were going to figure it out. So collectively, in a house that is not their own, that they don't own, they haven't rolled, they begin, I imagine in my mind, to find the crack that the heat had created in the roof. And, and, and let's start there. I think Jesus might be about in this area of the house. And I, I just wonder whose idea it was to like, let's just start pulling it apart. Let's start pulling it apart enough to get the mat that cannot be rolled up, that cannot be folded up, that can't, we have to do this together to get a mat down there so it's got to be big enough of a hole to get this guy down. And so they begin to dig. They begin to dig. Now, remember, these roofs are designed to hold people up, and they're trying to put someone through. Right now, I just have this picture in my mind of they begin to dig, and as they're down, and they, they, they pull up that first bit of mud, they're like, great. And as they begin to pull up mud, and they're putting it on the side, and it's all these blocks I can imagine if it's me, I'm comparing, like, look, I got a big chunk. How big is your biggest one? Because that's what I would do. And, and I'm just wondering at what point someone decided to put their hand in, and they caught the first palm. They caught that first slice that went through their finger because it was connected and it was meant to be packed in. How, how many slices to their hands did they receive to get through that roof? How much effort did they have to put in for something that they so desperately wanted for their friend? Their friend needed to be healed, didn't he? That's what they had so much faith in. If we can get him in front of Jesus, he will be healed. And, and so they dig and they dig. And then I imagine in this story, sitting in that room and all of a sudden, <laughs> what do you do when that first hand comes through? Come on, you're looking up and it starts to like, you know, dust down a little. And you're like, it's not an earthquake. What is this? And then someone's hand goes through your ceiling. This is like horror movie right here, right? Like, what is this? But this is the situation. Imagine being in that room. What would you do? I, if you own the house, you're probably freaking out. Right? What is it? Like, that took years to come up with it. But they dig and they dig and they dig to a place where a hole opens up that's big enough. It's big enough. And this whole scene makes me smile because these four guys love this man enough to tie ropes to the end of his mat to somehow work together and go, ready? One, two, three, little. One, two, three, little. There's no other way to get them down. You can't. Make, you got to make sure you're all on the same page. They've got bloody stumps of hands from lumps, uh, from the palms that are in there, and they're doing all that they can, giving everything they have to put him in front of Jesus, and then they land him in front of Jesus. And I just have this picture of them, like, leaning over the hole and kind of like, you know, these big old eyebrows. Jesus, you going to do it? Are you going to do it? And Jesus looks up at them, and he looks at the man, and they're thinking he's going to get exactly what he needs. He's going to walk. We've already seen it. And I love what Jesus does here. Check out verse 5. I love this. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he saw the, the, the men's faith. 
Not this man, the men. He's looking at the men. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, he turns his attention, Son, your sins are forgiven. Uh-uh-uh. Right, that's not what he expected. That's not what these guys expected. That's not what they wanted. All of this work to hear this teacher all of a sudden look at a guy that you, you were like, this is the moment, and say, your sins are forgiven. No, no, that is not what I want if I'm one of them men. One of them men. I'm, I'm ticked at Jesus at this point. That's not what this was about. This was about him walking. I saw it already. I want this for him. But Jesus looks up and he sees these, these men and he sees faith. He sees expectation. They have a great amount of faith in him. And instead of giving him what he most visibly needed from everybody, he gave him what he really needed and what he needed most in his life. Him not being able to walk was not the biggest need. It was the sin that he carried in his life that needed to be forgiven. And that's what Jesus saw. That's what Jesus saw. This is not what they wanted, not what they expected, not what anyone expected. And the teachers in the room who have just come to check Jesus out, he's new to the scene and they're like, we need to figure out what this guy is all about right now. All of them are trying to question him and they, they don't question him out loud. They haven't started and gained that courage yet. Everything is in their heart and in their mind and they're like, who does this dude think he is? Who does he think he is that he could forgive sin? That's crazy. You can't just say things like that. That's blasphemy. Could you imagine all the people? What are they thinking? Like, oh my gosh, this homeowner's going to kill them. You know, they don't have insurance. Who's covering this? Um, are we going to have to do this together? And, uh, he didn't heal him. Can Jesus not heal anymore? They expected something. Now they're probably wondering things. You know, what? Can you feel all the tension in the room over that one statement that Jesus made? I wonder what the paralyzed man is thinking. Did he feel any different when Jesus said that? Was he like, ah, I, I don't think so. I bet you he was just as confused as everybody else. Jesus, that's not what I thought I needed. I, I need to walk. I need to get out of here. But Jesus knows what's happening all around him. He knows the thoughts and the hearts of the attitudes of the people in the room because I believe the Holy Spirit showed that to him in that moment. And he looks at the teachers and he asks this amazing logical question. You ready for this question? I love that Jesus asked a question. Here's what he asks. He says, why do you question this in your hearts, the fact that he told them and he was forgiven? He said, is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Now, Jesus is being very logical. He turns to them and says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Logic is, is which is easier to say? Tell me. Why, why is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? There's no proof. There's no proof. Faith, your sins are forgiven. Ryan, your sins are forgiven. Bill, your sins are forgiven. You, we don't know anything, right? We can't do that. We can't. There's, you can say whatever you want. There's no way of measuring that. But in order to say to somebody, stand up. Wait, you can't do that. Pick up your mat. You probably don't have a lot of muscle mass in your legs to do this. And now walk. You haven't done that in years. You're just going to learn that and do it? There's multiple miracles. His healing is not the miracle. There's a lot of layers to this miracle. Are you with me? 
It would be much bolder for Jesus to say the second than the first. And so he kind of turns to them and he says, listen, if if it's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven, I could just say that, but I'm going to have to prove to you something different because I could see you don't believe that this happened. You don't believe that this is true. So I imagine him looking the Pharisees and these teachers right dead in the eye going, yeah, which is easier? You ready? You ready? And he stops for a second and gives them time to sit on it. And then he locks his eyes and he says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know that I can forgive sins. That's what he's saying. I want you to know this. And then I imagine him breaking his gaze with the teachers and then turning with empathy towards this man with a smile and saying, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Get up, take your mat, and go home. And this man takes up his mat. He stands up. And like the Red Sea in Exodus, the people part as he goes out. I imagine the screaming from the top of that roof of men saying, I knew that Jesus could do it. I knew that he could do it. And and everyone in that house is amazed at what's going on. A man who couldn't walk, who would have been lowered through the ceiling, could now walk. You see, the water had been bailed, but that was not the biggest problem in this man's life. And even though the passage does not say this, I cannot imagine anything else that if God restored the ability for this man to walk, he restored the ability of this man to dance because these guys, these five men are dancing home. They are celebrating because all of my Middle Eastern friends celebrate by dancing so well. There has to be an element of celebration that there he is walking and they are dancing and they are celebrating that this actually happened But if this actually happened, Jesus asked a logical question that saying you can walk is going to be much more accountable than your sins are forgiven. And if that's true, then so is this. This man's life is completely changed, not because he can walk, but because his greatest need was meant. His peace is not going to come from dancing. His joy will, his peace comes from forgiveness. You see, when we trust that God knows what we need, we will find our peace. For the paralyzed man, he, he expected to see Jesus, right? This was his hope. His friends, they expected him to be healed. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they expected just to learn about Jesus. Who is this? But Jesus had another plan. You're coming to me with expectations, but I have something different for you. I have not just a healing, but an experience of forgiveness. I have a celebration of joy for your friends. I have a very convicting word to the teachers who are here to judge. You see, If Jesus just healed this man, and that's all that was, it would be a huge, huge improvement to his life, but it would not fix the pump. It would not fix the problem. There's something else that's going wrong, and it was the sin that he held. And when when I keep using that word sin, I really mean anything that we think we say we do that does not line up with the teachings in the life of Jesus. Whenever we lack love, like Christ would have us demonstrate this is sin, and that was the problem that this man really had. That was the pump issue, and Jesus says that's the most important need. And there's so much that we can learn from this passage in our lives because, let's be real, how many times this week have you 
and I gone to Jesus? And we say, Jesus, I need your help right now. I need you to bail this water and it's bucket after bucket that we're giving him to say, I can't do this. And yet he's kind of saying, I, 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 you don't need me to bail water. There's a different issue. There's something else going on. And, and maybe it's not the sin in this man's life like it is. Like maybe he's not going to say, man, you need to be forgiven because we've been forgiven if you've chosen to follow Jesus. Maybe he's saying, there's something else that's under here that needs to be worked through. I, I have the parts for that. I might have to unscrew the deck a little bit. I might have to, to get my hands in here, and it might not be pleasant. There's disassembling before there's repairing. We might have to work through this, but, but there's a bigger issue that will stop the water from coming on board and staying there. It may still come on board, but if we work through this, we can pump that out. We can deal with that. But too many of us, I, I, I just think all we know when we approach God is lowering our friends or ourselves in front of them saying, help me, help me, help me, but this way, but this way. I, I need it like that. And if it's not exactly the way that we want it or what we think we need, we get pissed at God for not showing up the way we want. He didn't meet the expectation that I had, and how dare you? How dare you not understand the pain that I'm in? Do you not get what this is all about? But we do this. We come with our expectations and plans, and, and we say, God, you can do what you want in this limited amount of space, and that's not what these men did, did it? Is it? These men showed up, and they couldn't get to Jesus. Jesus wasn't coming to them, so they found another way. They were not willing to sit and say, well, that's just the way it's going to be. I hate when people say that. Jesus can do something in anything. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to get to him? And when we get to him, are we willing to submit to whatever he thinks we need more than what we think we want? Because when we trust that God knows what we need, it brings us peace. Our peace comes from knowing what you want from me, God, and what you think might need to be done in my life is, is probably a little deeper than, than I understand. And it will not be easy. It will not be simple. I totally understand this from, from so many angles, but like for a second, think about for those of you who are couples, um, you're dating, you're engaged, you're married. Um, how many of us have prayed at different points for God to rescue our marriages, to come into, you know, these, these tensions that we have, and we say, God, I'm so frustrated with them. My partner is driving me nuts. Would you do me a favor and change them? Change their attitude because I'm done. I'm frustrated. And if you need to use me as the voice to help them change, I am more than willing to submit to your will. You're giggling. Oh, good. You've prayed this prayer like I have. Good. Thank you. <laughs> it's wild, isn't it? We say, God, I, I want help in my marriage, and, and it, that help could come from changing them. I need help in this dating relationship, and it can come from changing them. How many of us have stopped to say, God, I need help in this marriage? What am I bringing to the table here that's totally messing this up? Am I part of the problem? Am I the issue here? Do you trust God in your relationships? If you're single... Are you begging God right now for a meaningful relationship? 
Are you, are you getting frustrated at the fact that maybe it's like all my friends are dating somebody. I feel like I should be dating somebody. Or all my friends seem to be getting engaged in this season. Maybe I should be getting engaged. Maybe you're coming off a horrific breakup or divorce and it, that pain is sitting so heavy on you and you're thinking, God, is this ever going to go away? Do I have any hope for a future with somebody? I'm getting a little older now. I don't want to do this anymore. Give me what I need. This is what I need, God. And he's saying, ah, maybe what you think you need is not what you need right now. Can we trust God enough in our singleness to say, maybe I'm in a place where you're shaping me and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just settle. Help me understand all that you need, God. How many marriages probably wouldn't even happen if we started before we got married and prayed that prayer. It'd be a blessing. I think most of us are dealing with this stuff, though, and, and the hardest part of all of this, and I, and I apologize for how difficult some of this can be, is for control freaks like me. If you're out there and you want to control all things, this makes the way that we pray so much harder because we can no longer go to God with our expectations of what needs to happen. Instead, we're submitting ourselves to his will, just like our Savior, Jesus Christ, prayed, would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Father. Not my will, but your will be done. And then being willing to wait because maybe his timing is different than ours. You know, there's a time that Captain Bill had to come down because bailing water wasn't helping. The crew is not listening and he had to push the bucket back in their face with a splash and say, you're just not getting it. And I fear that too many of us are running through our lives, bailing, 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 and it might just take our savior putting that bucket back in our face as a wake-up call to say, you've been completely ignoring me. Will you pay attention? I've been telling you over and over through scripture, through friends, through prayer, through church, there's a different issue to address. And when these men met Jesus, they came with what they thought they needed and expected. And instead, when they met Jesus, they realized that great peace comes when you can trust that God knows what you really need. Great peace will come when you trust that God knows what you really need. And when you trust that he really knows that it will ease the expectation that you always have to make things happen, okay? You won't have to be the person that makes it happen. And this is the three quick things to just write down for you. When you trust, here's the benefit for you. You're not going to have to do it, okay? You won't always have to be the person to make it happen. Take a breath. It's not all your responsibility. Isn't that good news? Oh, thank you. I need that. This is good news. You're not the person who has to make all things happen and fix the problems. Just relax. It's not all on you. The second thing it does is it puts us in our place when we trust God. You don't have to always make things happen, and guess what? You can't make all things happen. When we trust God, and that brings peace, there's a lot of humbling that's involved. And finally, it relieves the excess pressure and anxiety and the buildup from our everyday life. All those things that continue to sit on our shoulders, they're like, <gasps> He's saying, I know, I see that, and it is weighty, but you are so overwhelmed with all the water. Maybe the problem in the pump fix is you've said yes to way too many things. You're outside your capacity. It's your own fault. Wake up. You're allowed to say no. But when we can trust him, it relieves this pressure. And so as we approach the communion table, 
we approach the table understanding that Christ has said, I will take all of your burdens. You can cast them on me. I'll care for you. He's sitting with us. Yeah, he's bailing water sometimes. But most of the time, there's something else that, that is going on. If you're here this morning and you have no peace and you find anxiety is ruling you and, and you're worried about your kids, you're worried about your relationships, you're worried about school and you're worried about this, you're worried about this, it's, Christ says, you can come to me, all you who are heavy and weary. I will care. I do care. Let's fix the pump. What's great news is at Passover when he was with his disciples, he held up the cup or he held up the bread first and he said, this is my body that's been broken for you recognizing that, that we are all in a place. Just so you could take a deep breath right now or exhale a little bit, every single person around you is anxious right now. And trying to, like, they're anxious about, what am I going to do with this? Or is he going to shut up soon so that I can get out to go to my next thing? You're all carrying it. I am too. I get it. Jesus says, relax. Don't avoid the problem. My body is broken for you. And then he held up the cup of redemption at Passover and he said, this is the cup that represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that each time we start bailing and stop focusing on the issues, he says, that's okay, I forgive you. Let's turn to the issues. We could do this together. I forgive you every time you turn away, every time you ignore me. And I'll forgive you because I love you deeply. And so this morning, would you stand with me? If there is something that's weighing on your shoulders right now that you feel like you're carrying, I want to give you just um, 30 seconds in silence or so before we approach the table to maybe even ask the Holy Spirit for some discernment right now. What are you carrying and what's sitting heavy so that maybe there could be some peace for you this morning? Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us if there's areas where we're expecting things from you that are not what we need? that we might confess to you in this moment. Thank you for promising peace to those who place our trust in Christ and follow his teachings. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for us. Would you truly forgive us for where we have just not paid attention? And I even confess the times I feel like in bailing water, I'm so frustrated at you that I have turned and not handed you a bucket, but feel like I splash my problems onto you as though they're your fault. Would you forgive me? Thank you for the gift of forgiveness and for the celebration of communion together where we elevate the cross of Christ above all else, the name of Jesus above all other names. Jesus, we celebrate your cross and victory today together. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
If you're a follower of Jesus, we would encourage you to come and take communion with us. And we have an open table for all those who have trusted in Christ. If you have not uh, placed your trust in him, please, we encourage you to sit back um, and we will uh, close our service in prayer in a minute. So would you come? This morning, can you imagine for a second if we were a people of peace, how much that would impact our community? That when everyone's spinning and they look at us and they're like, what in the world is up with you? Why aren't you freaking out like us? It's like, no, 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 I'm nervous about that. I feel that a lot. But it doesn't define me and it's not going to ruin my day. There's only so much I can do. I'm going to have to trust that God is sovereign and he knows what we need in this moment more than I do. We will look crazy but could you imagine the gift of peace that we could bring to our schools, to our homes, to our neighborhoods? Could you imagine how much of a blessing Crossbridge could be if we were a people of peace? Oh, I'd love that. Would you stand and receive the benediction from the Apostle Paul, who writes to the church in Philippi in chapter 4, he simply says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable, and right, and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you've learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. May you go in his peace. God bless.